0: Howdy how, this is Aswe, and you're listening to Brown Men Won't Jump. Howdy how, y'all, Aswe here, and welcome to another episode of Brown Men Won't Jump. Joining me today are AC.
1: What's up, guys? And Eric. Yes, sir.
0: So we had originally intended to record a normal, lighthearted podcast today about our degenerate basketball gambling habits, but something outside of basketball occurred today that was too significant to ignore, both as citizens of the United States and also as fans of the NBA. Today, a Minnesota jury found Officer Derek Chauvin guilty on all three counts that he was facing, second-degree murder, third-degree murder, and manslaughter for pinning George Floyd's neck to the asphalt with his knee until Mr. Floyd stopped breathing. Now, in honor of Martin Luther King Day, we published a podcasting in January describing the history of the NBA's involvement in various social justice movements throughout the decades, from Bill Russell, Oscar, and Kareem in the 60s, to the efforts of modern players like LeBron James and Jalen Brown in continuing that ongoing struggle today. So if you're interested in that topic, I highly recommend you guys check out that podcast. Towards the latter half of that podcast, we discussed the NBA's reaction to the murder of George Floyd and wondered about the impact of the NBA's efforts. Following this momentous verdict, we thought it would be worth revisiting just how the efforts of the NBA and its players might have actually brought about the guilty verdicts that were issued. But before we get to that, Let's focus on the breaking news itself that Derek Chauvin was found guilty on all three counts. Guys, what was your reaction when you heard the news?
2: My first thought, honestly, was surprise. Because realistically, this just doesn't happen. In the vast majority of instances, police officers aren't even charged with crimes. And if they are charged with crimes, they usually don't even get indicted by grand juries. We saw that happen relatively recently in New York a few years ago, where Eric Garner famously uttered, I can't breathe 11 times while being strangled and eventually killed by a police officer for something so non-threatening as selling cigarettes. Now that entire incident was captured on video, and yet a grand jury in Richmond County, which is Staten Island for those who aren't familiar with New York City, they didn't even indict the police officer. And in the rare events that police officers are indicted, they're hardly ever convicted. In fact, in a study conducted by the Police Integrity Research Group and the Washington Post, between January of 2005 and June of 2019, a span of 14 years, only 104 non-federal sworn law officers in the entire country were arrested for murder or manslaughter resulting from an on-duty shooting where the officer shot and killed someone. Wow. Yeah just 104 and that's just arrest because out of those 104 officers only 35 of those officers were convicted for any crime as a result of the on-duty shooting and unsurprisingly nearly half of the black police officers who were arrested for such crimes were convicted but in all cases irrespective of the race of the police officer in question they were almost always charged with a lesser offense not murder so out of the 35 police officers in the last in this 14-year span that were charged of a crime, it was almost always not murder. In fact, and this is a shocking number, between the years 2005 and 2019, only four police officers were convicted of murder in the entire country.
0: Are you serious?
2: Yeah. So the fact that here a police officer was found guilty of all charges, including murder, is an incredibly rare event.
1: Yeah, facts. and. My feelings about this, I wasn't. I wouldn't go as far as saying I was necessarily surprised. I was happy about the verdict, but I think the the glitch in the system, almost like the Matrix, is that we're allowed every so often to have convictions, even though the mass majority of the cases, as AC said, end up in some acquittal. Um, I saw a Washington Post study that said. As far as Blacks, in the 14-year period between 2005 and 2019, there were over 1,600 police-involved shootings, or murders, rather. And out of those, uh, just a significantly small number actually ended up in some conviction. Of course, for every George Floyd, you have an Eric Garner, you have a Michael Brown, You have a Samuel DuBose. You have a Sandra Bland. You have a Philando Castile. You have a Terrence Crutcher. All of these cases are pretty known police shootings that all ended up in some form of an acquittal. So this was great that it happened, but I'm not exactly sure. And this could just be the pessimist in me being a black American. I'm not exactly sure that is a harbinger of change to come.
0: I agree with AC that I was genuinely surprised that the verdict was guilty. And it's not because, I mean, it's very clear from what we saw that he was guilty, but so many times police fall through the cracks. And I'm with you there, Eric. Is this going to be a harbinger change? I don't know, because... Within the past week, there are how many shootings by police? And those shootings are a lot less visible. So is this going to make real change? I'm not sure, but I'm definitely surprised and and very happy that it happened. So I don't know if you guys know, but I served on a grand jury for about four or five months uh, from end of 2019 to beginning of 2020. And, you know, in a given day, grand jury members see, I want to say, 10 to 15 cases a day. And all our job is to say, based on the evidence that's put forth, whether or not there's probable cause, whether the charges that were assigned to the person in question were probable and just based on the law. The casual nature of just saying yes and voting yes because, oh, you know, that matches the description. That, that sounds like about right. When you're sitting in a room for like eight hours just voting on case after case after case after case, There comes a point where you just kind of want to leave for the day. You're just tired. And so voting yes is so easy, even though these are people's lives. So it does blow my mind that when you have these very public and well-documented murders by police, that a grand jury somehow finds them not guilty. But I think the reason why that may be is because when you think about the grand jury process, all the evidence that we get. The witnesses that we hear from are cops. All the evidence comes from the police. We don't hear any other sides. We just hear, oh, uh, the guy ran, so I tackled it. And he was refusing arrest, so you know we had to get a little physical with him. So I understand in the sense that a lot of the information that grand juries are given is very one-sided. But at the same time, when you have that much video evidence, how can it be anything other than obviously murder?
2: So to clarify, what Oswee is talking about is the grand jury indicting someone. So for those who are familiar, in order for a police officer to be charged and ultimately convicted of a crime, they have to first be charged with that crime, which frankly doesn't happen often enough. And then if they are charged, then a grand jury has to indict them. And the only standard for that is probable cause. It's a very low bar. But somehow, even with video evidence, as we saw in the Eric Garner case, grand juries don't indict often enough. And if they do indict, then it goes to a trial in front of either a bench, which means a judge or a jury. And then again, they just don't get found to be guilty often enough. And if they are found to be guilty, it's rarely ever of murder, even in cases where they blatantly shoot someone and someone dies.
1: This is something, it's, it's fascinating that you all are speaking about how grand juries work and its relation to cops not actually being charged, thus a part and parcel of their low rates of conviction. Like being a a black person growing up in America when I was a kid, like this is something that even your elders who lack any type of legal training, just like instinctively know that, hey, they could charge you for anything if they go before a grand jury, but fat chance if it's a cop, he or she ain't getting charged.
2: Yeah, and I think that's one thing to note, Eric, as to why this is a decision that should be celebrated in some ways, because I definitely felt a sense of relief here that justice was served, because what infuriates so many of us is not just the callous use of force by police officers, particularly against the black community, but also the fact that time and time again, you know, guilty police officers are able to walk away unscathed as if nothing transpired at all. And it It's to the point that police officers are disincentivized from accepting plea deals because they're so confident they can avoid indictment or at least prevail at trial. I think what we all want is what LeBron said in his tweet after this decision went public, which is accountability. And that's accountability for those you know who have the privilege of using lethal force, such as police officers, to be held to a higher standard, not a lower one. And then, you know, perhaps ultimately this case can be a reminder then for a police officers to be more vigilant. And to err on the side of caution before applying lethal force, of course, I'm not naive enough to think that the fight is over. In fact, it definitely is
0: not. For sure. So following the murder of George Floyd, which happened while the NBA was shut down, we saw a huge surge in social justice activity amongst NBA players. Now, this generation of players, led by the likes of LeBron James, Carmelo Anthony, Dwayne Wade, Chris Paul, and Steph Curry had already shown to be unafraid to take public stances on a variety of issues from the death of Trayvon Martin to the death of Eric Garner. But this time, we saw the next generation of athletes becoming particularly active during the lockdown, with many individuals participating in the actual protests themselves. For instance, Jalen Brown drove all the way down to Atlanta, Tobias Harris, Damian Lillard, Russell Westbrook, Carl Anthony Towns, even after just losing his mom tragically to COVID-19. So do you think that in retrospect, that this could be a spark of another era akin to the 1960s, where athletes and activists went hand in hand, when athletes were truly more than just athletes? So for me, this
1: is one of the developments that I'm most interested in. And I'm reluctantly happy. In the Black community, particularly with with athletes, it was very commonplace during the civil rights movement to have athletes who were very invested in their social civic responsibility of, at the time, trying to assure that their group gained access to greater civil rights. So, of course, we know civil rights icons like Jackie Robinson or Jim Brown or Kareem Abdul-Jabbar or Muhammad Ali or Bill Russell. It was pretty commonplace then. At some point with the advent of an explosion in contracts, money, endorsements, athletes almost got into this Reagan era logic of I got mine you need to get yours. Of The course, corporate that, athlete. The corporate athlete. That's, that's perfect, AC. So you have Michael Jordan as being the biggest physical manifestation of this. Like, we know the maybe apocryphal story of Michael Jordan saying Republicans buy sneakers too when asked to weigh in on a political race in his native North Carolina. And also, it seemed as if when athletes did speak out, they were kind of summarily punished for it. We saw this with Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf, the former Chris Jackson who protested the national anthem at NBA games and was summarily punished for it. We saw this with Craig Hodges, who played for the early 90s Bulls, who was punished for something similarly. Yep. It was disincentivized. But Something great has happened in the last 10 years. We have seen athletes more and more feeling comfortable going to, or at first, it just started dipping their toes in social issues. But this last year has seen a reimagining of the athlete activists,
0: which I, I'm
1: actually fairly happy to
0: see. Throughout our history, some of our best activists have actually been athletes. I mean, let's not forget Jesse Owens just completely shunning the world, and especially Hitler, in front of Hitler in the Olympics. Like you mentioned, Bill Russell, Kareem, Jim Brown, Jackie Robinson, all these guys. And, you know, you mentioned Michael Jordan. Well, Michael Jordan, as the only black owner in the NBA, shows another level of excellence. See, when you think about the corporate athlete, their connection to their fans were largely dictated by those corporations. So, you know, the like Mike ads, that's how Michael Jordan's persona was pictured. But nowadays, athletes have access to social media, which is a direct way of interacting with their fans. And so if they are speaking out on issues and the fans are receiving it well, now the athletes are the ones with the power and the corporations are beholden to them. Before, athletes' platform and their voice was given to them. Now they have their own. And so therefore, they have a lot more leverage. As their social media platforms get bigger and as basketball as a whole spreads across the world, we're going to see a lot more of these athletes. And through the influence of these NBA players, it also trickled over to guys in other leagues, whether it's baseball or soccer or football. It's like that phrase, if you have a single lit candle, you can pass the flame to another candle and another candle and another candle and another candle. And And the initial flame will not be weaker, but combined it would create this beautiful army of flames. And that's kind of like the same thing here. We've seen this activism growing from the LeBrons and blossoming outward. So I'm really optimistic when I see this.
1: Hey, and by the way, guys, shout out to Tommy Smith and John Carlos at the 1968 Olympics. For some reason, when I remember great athlete activists, I always forget these two guys. They—they're the two guys who won the gold and the silver in the two hundred meters, and they put up the black power salute at the sixty-eight Olympics, and like <laughs> their career prospects immediately just went into the dirt. But they knew what they were sacrificing, but they were still willing to do it. Like incredibly brave men who should be mentioned more often.
0: Amen. Amen to that. Their careers may not have lasted, but the memory of what they did will live on forever.
2: I mean, it's one of the most iconic pictures in Olympics history, right? The two of them standing up there with their hands raised in a fist.
0: Hands raised in a fist with their shoes off. That's that's so powerful.
2: What's interesting to me also is that when play actually resumed following the COVID shutdown, the NBA and the Players Association made a series of never-before-seen changes to the encore product, to help bring awareness to a variety of social justice causes. And some of these things were kind of novel. For instance, they allowed players to wear certain messages in the back of their jerseys. And while these were only pre-approved messages, it was certainly notable and at least memorable. The court itself had the words Black Lives Matter displayed on it, as did much of the signage throughout the bubble arenas. There were multiple commercials that aired throughout the bubble playoffs addressing various issues of social justice from income inequality to police brutality to voting rights and players spent entire pre and post game interviews addressing social justice issues such as the death of brianna taylor what did you guys ultimately think of the nba's and the players efforts leading into the bubble do you feel like they were effective
0: i thought that at first it seemed like a typical you know all these corporations they'll say Oh, Black Lives Matter, or this and that, and then they won't go that extra mile, right? It's just a tagline so they get some positive press. But then, as I saw how they rolled it out, I thought, man, they're going all out. I mean, the Toronto Raptors showed up in buses with Black Lives Matter painted on them proudly. I mean, that talk about a hell of a gesture, right? Then when you look at the courts, Black Lives Matter everywhere. All the shooter shirts have some type of BLM-related material. It's something that whenever you look at these highlights, for the rest of time, you'll always see though that messaging there. And I feel like that has a lot of important impact when you just look at history, right? And I thought that because there was literally nothing else on TV at the time, there's no other sports, the NBA players had this really unique opportunity where all eyes were on them, and then they had this platform where sometimes they would talk about this issue. And when you project forward from that point, when you think about the results of the November election in 2020, and what demographics of people really brought Biden over the finish line, there's a direct correlation there. I, I don't want to limit it to just the NBA here. I also want to talk about the WNBA because they too participated in this type of activism and When you think about the Georgia runoff elections, they had a direct impact on Reverend Raphael Warnock winning over the Atlanta Dream's own owner. So was it affected? Hell yes. They were part of a massive amount of change that occurred in the latter half of 2020 and the beginning of 2021. It's undeniable.
2: To your point, Oswee, I I think it's easy to almost disregard the impact of protests, right? You hear it all the time, often by those who are in support of what's being protested. They tend to make these arguments that, oh, why are they doing this? It's not going to make a big change, blah, 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 blah. Well, guess what? Maybe every little thing alone doesn't make a change. But I'll tell you what, cumulatively, the protests that happened since the death of George Floyd Undeniably, you know, and I don't, I don't mean just NBA, but I mean the nation as a whole, the protests that happened, the reforms that movement sparked, have had a difference in changes in the laws of this country. You know, forget any one particular verdict, but they've actually been able to change the laws and legislatures across this country, which could actually impact the way that police brutality, in particular, is dealt with. And you saw with voting rights, for instance, right? How much these various institutions were able to bring attention and resources to the fight against voter suppression in in Georgia and other places in the deep South. So yes, maybe each one of these things could have been seen potentially as a protest without much bite, but collectively, they didn't make an impact. And I'll say this as well. Let's not forget that during the midst of the bubble, there was unfortunate shooting of Jacob Blake, who was shot four times in the back and then paralyzed in, in Kenosha, in frankly, an extremely cowardly attack by a police officer. And by all accounts, this was an unbearable blow to the NBA players who had spent so much time and effort and money trying to fight for social justice in the bubble, only to see that effort, at least in their eyes, amounting to nothing. But then we had the bubble boycott, which, which was spurred by the Bucks, and actually led to the postponement of three different Game Fives, led to the whole country talking about what was going on. It led to three WNBA games, five Major League Soccer games, and three Major League Baseball games called off as athletes acted in solidarity with the Bucks players. So when we talked earlier about how it's extremely rare to see a guilty verdict of murder for a police officer involved in a shooting like that or a murder like that of George Floyd. Well, all these things, while not maybe the direct cause of why it happened, all play a role in raising awareness nationally and and sort of bringing attention to an issue That could potentially lead to a verdict like this so in my opinion all of these things did matter
0: and i do want to add one thing real quick let's also not forget that the nba took it a step further after all of this and actually created with the national basketball players association they formed the national basketball social justice coalition and it'll lead the nba family's collective efforts to advance equality and social justice so It's not even that they're just putting the Black Lives Matter sign. It's not just that they're allowing their players to use their platforms for justice. But it's also that they're going the extra mile, having owners and players and coaches alike all coming together to try to combat social and racial injustice in our country. And I think that is something that we really need to commend the NBA for because they didn't have to go that extra mile but they knew that they wanted to do the right thing.
2: I want to contest that point just a little bit because the NBA, specifically the owners, didn't just offer that up. It came as a result of the boycott. It's one of the demands the players made during that whole boycott negotiation. They they wanted certain changes, including the owners to spend a certain amount of money, which ultimately the owners did agree to do to their credit. I don't want to say that they don't deserve any credit because to my knowledge, there's no similar thing in any other sports league in the world, really. Of course, other sports leagues are involved in charities, but not this specific issue, combating social injustice in such a direct way and and creating a committee of NBA players and owners working together to try to solve these issues. It's really an amazing development. And another reason why the boycott, which the buck started in response to the Jacob Blake shooting. Actually, ended up being very fruitful.
1: So I am of the opinion that you have a little column A, a little column B. The NBA's rollout was good and bad, but I expect the good and bad from a fledgling like social justice network. So I I think the protest and being. Part of a collectivist protest definitely had some effect on this verdict. I have no doubt in my mind. In a country that puts such of a great emphasis on capital, that the threat of protests led to a more open and transparent trial for Derek Chauvin. And I, I definitely think NBA players can look at themselves. In the mirror with some respect for participating in that i think some of the commodification of social justice issues that seemed at the time to be a little too wedded to consumerism in the bubble uh with some of the, the messaging on the shirts and the commercials and the commercials tied to corporations that got very muddy at some point but again Ultimately, the NBA is a money-making business, so I I expect consumerism is just a weird confluence of things where you have social justice issues like racial equity being tied to consumerism. But I mean, at that point, I'm I'm quibbling a little, but I I do think there were some positives. I I think the rollout towards boycotting that. The Milwaukee Bucks initiated, that was a little fraught with inconsistencies and and conflicting messaging. I think the WNBA was a little more consistent in their messaging. But all in all, for a professional sports league in America where, you know, capital and, and money making is king, the altruism that they showed was fairly good.
0: Then I have a question for you guys. Now, there is this theory that the recent ratings decline of the NBA is due to the social justice stances of the NBA and its players. How much credence do you find in that?
2: So I'm sure there was some segment of fans out there who decided to tune out because they didn't like the activism that was on display in the bubble by the NBA and its players, whether they just tend not to want to think about these issues or if they actually maybe have opposing views to the players. But I I actually think the ratings decline is is a far bigger problem than any one thing like this. I think there's a confluence of factors that led to that, including the fact the season took place during a widespread pandemic with no fans in, in in a bubble during the time of the year where Football was going on and baseball was approaching its playoffs. The whole thing was bizarre. And let's not forget that the NBA actually had a bit of a ratings decline even pre-pandemic and pre-any of these social justice movements. So there are bigger factors here. But I think there's a larger point that needs to be made. So if you're a fan that's sitting there and you enjoy the NBA, you are enjoying the entertainment by a predominantly black league, right? You're enjoying the things that these athletes can do. But if you can only see them for that, a source of entertainment, but can't see the pain that they feel when decisions like this happen, and if you can't bring yourself to feel empathy toward them, or to at least feel that there should be some kind of justice, that a man should not have a knee knelt down on their neck for eight minutes and 42 seconds, that These players have the right to be more than just people just dribbling a ball for you, that they're actually human beings that have lives beyond that and and concerns and their own families to worry about and circumstances where they themselves might run into these into police policemen then in my opinion you are not the sort of audience the nba should even seek to cultivate because in the long run what the nba and its players did was the right thing and it will be seen as such in the history books as we look back on this decades down the road you know there was a time where i'm sure there were a segment of nba fans who didn't want black players even playing in the nba and guess what the nba succeeded in spite of those fans, and it will succeed in spite of these haters who have no empathy for the struggles of others.
1: Hear, hear, AC. And in addition, sports in this country have always had some sociopolitical bit to them, whether it's, you know, celebrating the military or celebrating national anthems. There's always some politicization that takes place it it just it seemingly seems in bad faith some of the attacks about the NBA's activism and I think you very very clearly lay out what I was thinking that if you are the type of fan that this somehow stops you from watching a basketball game well stop watching basketball uh, watch football or or baseball some other sport that is more along your political ideology, but otherwise you are watching a predominantly black sport and these athletes aren't just here purely for your entertainment whims. So that's just life. Facts, my friend, facts. Before we go, since we were talking about the protest movement in the United States, I want to have a big shout out to fans we might be having and other places outside of the United States, particularly in the global South, that adopted Black Lives Matter and extrapolated it to their own on-ground social situations. I want to shout out to them for the support. And we stand in solidarity with you and your personal Black Lives Matter movement.
0: For sure. And to all other groups, whether LGBTQ group, women's rights groups, and so many others, all of us here at Brown Men Won't Jump want to tell you that we stand with you and we support you. So please keep fighting the good fight. Hear, here. here. And so with that, I think we've found the perfect place to stop for today. We really hope you enjoyed today's episode. And just a reminder, please check out our episode about the NBA and social justice that we did back in January. If you like this one, I'm sure you're going to like that one as well. Remember to please like, subscribe, and rate our podcast wherever you get your podcast. And be sure to check us out at brownmenwontjump.com or email us at brownmanwilljump@gmail.com. at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you guys. Take care, be safe, and be well.